as uh, Dan shared, we're back in 1 John. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at continuing this, this idea of from darkness to light. Uh, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, this has happened to you. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are still in darkness. And that is the, the message that we'd like to convey, is that there's no reason for you to remain in darkness. Come to the light. Come to faith in Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel is going to show itself pretty mightily in, in the lives, uh, in what John is communicating uh, to his readers back in his day. But the power of the gospel is not diminished one little bit. It can save people right where they are. I was talking to someone this past week, and, 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 and it's the, uh, they, they were dealing with, as they were sharing faith with someone, the, the idea that as they're sharing their faith, people think that they have to clean themselves up to present themselves to God. No, God expects you to come with all your dirt, with all your sin, and He intends for you to, to bring it all to the cross where He redeemed, where He redeemed sinners. He will forgive you of your sins. John has covered that as, as he's in 1 John, right? Chapter 1, verse 9. We know that God is a forgiving God. And so uh, I hope that that is true of you here this morning. I hope you understand that Jesus Christ died for your sins on that cross. He was buried, demonstrating that he, is, he was susceptible to death. But then he rose again on the third day in the fulfillment of scriptures. And as a result of that, he is um, uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Am I forgetting something? That's what's wrong. Watch this. It's Now we're going to do a sound check. I'll, I'll whisper, all right. Dan is so tactful. Who would have thunk? All right. Well, I'll be honest with you. This thing hurts after a while, so I take it off in between the services, and I'm usually pretty good. All right. Are we good now? We're good. So thank you for understanding and, and for being tactful, Dan. That, that was good. All right. We're going to talk about maturing in our faith, right? It's a similarity to maturing in our own, in our own abilities, right? Dan? All right. I haven't matured yet. So we are dealing with some darkness to light, and sorry for that little interruption, but it was necessary. So let's, let's we, what we've been considering over the last couple of weeks is this question. How do I know that I know Jesus? We just talked about the gospel, right? That Jesus is Lord and Savior, and you can have your sins forgiven and spend eternity with him, but not just spend an eternity with him. You can have a relationship with him today. And so how do I know that I know Jesus? According to what John was saying in the text, we covered two things. I know that I know Jesus when I obey him and when I, when I ob abide in him. And we're not going to rehash those, but that obey command is the idea of loving as God loves. Right? We're supposed to love God, we're supposed to love our fellow man. And that's the idea. And when, we, when we're doing that loving that way, we are abiding and if we say we are abiding, then this love that we have for God and for our fellow man is true in our life. Or we are deceived into thinking that we are something that we're not. So I want to go on to this next logical question, and that is, now that I know that I know Jesus, now that I know I'm a Christian, now that I know that I've come to faith, here's the question, how do I know I'm maturing in my faith? I'm sure just about everybody in this room woke up this morning, walked into the bathroom, brushed your teeth, looked in the mirror and said, how do I know that I'm maturing as a Christian? I'm sure that is on the forefront of your mind 
Well, actually, if it wasn't, I hope it is now. How do I know that I'm maturing in my faith? I think what we're going to be challenged with today is that a maturing faith, of which we all desire, will align one's desires with the will of God. If we state it personally, I know I have a maturing faith if my desires are aligned with the will of God. You can say it in any number of different ways, but it's the idea that what we desire matters. John's going to get to an exhortation portion of, of this passage. He's going to be challenging his readers and his listeners to, his, to, to this message. Uh, and we, are, we come along for the ride and we get to see this. But basically what John d- does in this passage of Scripture, verses uh, 12 through 17 of chapter 2, he breaks it down into two portions. The first portion is a portion of encouragement. And I hope that you will be encouraged today. But his encouragement is actually leading. It's, it's, ba- it's based on what already came in the text. But it's, it's really moving us forward to the exhortation, the challenge that he is going to place upon all those reading or hearing his words. And so therefore, we are going to be exhorted in verses 15 through 17. So in the family happenings, I worded it this way. I said, biblical encouragement puts wind in our sails. You'll hear me say this from time to time. I don't know why I came up with this, but I, but I say it all the time. You know, being around people puts wind in my sails, right? Uh, doing finances, uh, you know, other, you know, tedious little things. That, that's not as, I do those things, right? But it's not something I, I, it puts wind in my sails. It doesn't make me feel alive, right? So, but biblical encouragement, whatever that in biblical encouragement is to you, there, there's wind that's put in your sails. And John is going to detail some, he's going to remind the believers uh, in the area of Ephesus where this letter is being circulated, he's going to remind them, he's going to remind us that there are things that we need to be encouraged by as believers in Jesus Christ. Biblical exhortation, that second half, helps us chart the best course ahead. So with the encouragement, with the wind in the sails, we get to sail in the direction that God wants us to go. Biblical encouragement allows us to receive biblical exhortation so that we can go forward the way God wants us to go forward. So let's, go, let's look at this uh, idea as we talk about biblical encouragement. Verses 12 through 14. It, uh, it is encouraging to be reminded about the benefits of our faith. Now, John is going to list a number of different things as we go through here. And I'm going to try and explain some things up front, and then I might blow by some slides. It didn't go as smoothly as in the first service, so I'm going to do some prep work now. And if I, if I, I, I'll, I'll try not to be redundant later. I'll just skip those slides as they come. All right? It's encouraging to be reminded about the benefits of our faith. Well, you mean there's more benefits than I'm, than I'm not going to pay the consequences of my sin? There's more benefits for, for than, than, than just being in God's presence and being in a relationship with God forever? Well, yeah, there are. There's this world benefits that are going to take place. And, and so it's encouraging to know when we are, I, I don't know, are you in need of encouragement this morning? Because when you go out of these, this door... Uh, there's no longer, you're not necessarily surrounded by a bunch of Christians who hopefully are loving you like Jesus loves you and hopefully are encouraging you the way you need to be encouraged. All of us as Christians can, can, can uh, love like Jesus and all of us Christians are capable of not loving like Jesus and, and, and certainly I'm guilty of that just as much as the next guy. 
But isn't it, it's encouraging for us to touch base on some of the fundamentals of our faith. And John does that. And, and he does that in a way where he says, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. John actually has in 12, 13, and 14, there's two sets of parallel statements. Uh, it goes to little children, little children, young men, young men, fathers, fathers. Not necessarily in that order, but that's the, uh, chronologically that's the way it's given. And so when he's talking about the little children, he's talking about all of us. He's already used this term of endearment for other Christians. He says, listen, listen to me, little children, my children. John's an old man at this point. He is probably calling all other old men his children because why? He's, he's probably the longest in the faith. He, he walked with Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He understood the love of Jesus, and he has been pouring out that love as often as he can. And, and so he's saying, I'm writing to you. It's in the present tense. In the first parallel, I write, I write, I write. In the second paralleling thoughts, I wrote, I wrote, I wrote. And so I'll, I'll, I'll just understand, there's structure to this part, and, but we can't spend too much time on the structure because then I, I shortchanged the exhortation port, portion in the first service, and I don't want to do that. So I write to you, little children. Why? Because your sins are forgiven you. Now I'm going to pause there. Notice this word right here, because. In the King James and the New King James, that's the word that is translated. In other translations, it's the word that. It changes the nuance a little bit. And so as, as we think about this, uh, it says, I write to you, little children. I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven you, or I'm writing, little children, that your sins are forgiven you. One, one has the, the idea of, I'm motivated to write because you are forgiven of sins, which is probably true. He's motivated to know that. But he's also writing to encourage them. So he says, I write to you, little children, that your sins are forgiven. Be encouraged, Christians. Your sins are forgiven you. And now when you bring up the topic of sin, we get, some of us get itchy-twitchy. It's like, yeah, I mean, sin is a real thing in my life. I've got abiding sin. I can't seem to, I can't seem to get rid of out of the habits that I'm in. And, and so we bring up this idea of sin, and it's like, that's not very encouraging, Pastor. Sin is not, sin is, it's horrible, and I have it in my life. And and when you ever you talk about sin, Pastor, it, it reminds me of the sins of my past, these major, unquantifiable sins, these massive journeys into iniquity, whatever it might be. If, Pastor, stop talking about sin. I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about forgiveness of sins. There are sins that when I bring it up, I remember. And I have to remind myself in Christ... I am not that person anymore. I have been forgiven. Your sins are forgiven you. It's the idea. All these positive things that, that John is going to encourage us with, they're all things that have taken place in the past, but have continuing effect in our now. So if you're struggling with sin, well, confess it, repent it, right? <laughs> and, and repent from it. But Understand this, all those sins from the past covered under the blood of Christ. All your current sins and all your future sins are also covered under the blood of Christ. Your sins, all of them, are forgiven you for His name's sake. Because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's the gospel. God became man, hung on a cross, died for our sins, sent it into heaven. 
right? Coming again as judge. And there is therefore now no condemnation. We must remind ourselves who we are in Christ. And John starts off saying, I'm writing to you little children, all Christians, all Christians have their sins forgiven. That includes you. And if you're not a Christian this morning, please just pray to God and confess your sins and he will forgive you of your sins and he will make you a child of God if you will come to faith in what Jesus has done. If you, try, if you will just leave everything else that you're trying to do, all your good works, if you just leave them behind and come to faith in Jesus, that is what you need to do. He goes on in 13, he says, I write to you fathers. So it's going for children, it's a broad uh, term, talking about all Christians. But then he subdivides that into uh, two groups, fathers and young men. And so for the sake of gender uh, understanding here, uh, fathers are talking about older believing men. So therefore, I will just throw the word mothers out there, uh, ladies of the older more mature generation, right? This is for you. And then for the young men, let's just include young women in there too. This idea of, as we are all children of God, if we come to faith in Christ, there is this dynamic that takes place, that there are those of us who are older, and there are those of us who are younger, and Paul is speaking to both groups. To the older group, he says, because you have known him. This is something that took place in the past. He says, You've known him who is from the beginning. They know Jesus. These, these folks, they've known him from the beginning. They've known him for a long time, these older men and women. And they need to be reminded of that in their present context of whatever they're struggling with, with the false teachers that are invading their lives and invading their church. He's saying, listen, you know Jesus. From the beginning of your faith, you've known this to be true. And now that you're in your senior lives, let that truth uphold you. He says, I write to you, young men, that you have overcome the wicked one. Again, the the idea of because is that. I'm writing to you that you know, uh, that you have known him. Be encouraged, you've known him. I write to you that you have overcome the wicked one. He's talking to these, these young men and women, and he's saying, with the vitality that you have in your young life, You have overcome Satan. Not through your strength and vitality alone. It's the vitality you have in Christ. Let me encourage you that you have overcome. It's a done deal. Finished. Complete. complete. But you are still enjoying the benefits of that. Live out your faith is what he's going to be building up uh, up to in the next portion. Now, the, the, the unfortunate thing about verse numbering that took place that wasn't of Jesus and it wasn't of the Holy Spirit. It was mankind trying a couple smart, very smart people looking at the different teaching portions and, and trying to divide the text where they thought it was be this, uh, divided. It's really verse 14 should start right here, right? I write to you children. I write to you fathers. I write to you young, young men. And then he starts his second parallel thought. I write to you little children that you have known the Father. It says in verse 13, the beginning there, that you have known Him, speaking of Jesus from the beginning. Now He's writing to the little children. He says, because I'm writing to you that now He, but the, the verb tense has changed, but the King James and the New King James doesn't, doesn't show us that, right? It, it says right here, I write to you. It's actually should be written like this. Like this. I have written 
to you. I have written to you, fathers and young men. So understand the parallel. I'm not going to say much more about it. It's the idea that as we think about our, um, our identity in Christ, these children, i got to go back to the idea, is that I write to you, the bottom portion there, little children, that you have known the Father. We all know the Father if we know the Son. Jesus said that. Lord, show us the Father. Andrew, how can you say that? Or Philip, I forget which one it was. How can you say that? I've been with you for so long. If you have the Father, you have life. Excuse me. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you do not have life. If you have the Son, you have the Father. If you have the Father, you have the Son. It's the Trinity, folks. And so I write to you, little children, that you know that you have known the Father. This, I've written this to you for your benefit, for your encouragement. Um, he goes on to say, I've written to you, uh, fathers, be, that you have known him who is from the beginning. It's, it's the same thing. It's the same thing he said in, in verse uh, 13. Moving along, he says, I have written to you, past tense, young men, because what? You are strong. These are words of encouragement. Young men, young women, you're strong. He says, the word of God abides in you. He says, you have overcome the wicked one. He says it again. What is he saying? Is it our strength he's, that he's exemplifying? No, we're strong in the Lord. It is, it is that, that strength that comes from our relationship with God that is empowered by the word of God abiding in us. We have the complete canon. We can, we can go and read any part of it and be strengthened. These young men and young ladies, they were, they were being strengthened from the Word of God that was preached and taught and, and communicated and that they remember. They certainly didn't have the complete canon, but, but they were pretty close to the time of Christ. And some of these people may have even been around the ministry of Christ. John certainly was. And he's saying, listen, this strength comes from the Word of God abiding in you. And as a result, you've overcome the wicked one. You've overcome Satan. Think about that. We have, not of our own power, but in the power of Christ, we have the ability to overcome Satan. And if we have this ability, then we can do the exhortation that he's leading up to. But let's think about this first. Let's just do a re- recap real quick. John encouraged them, one, that your sins are forgiven. This is true of all believers. Two, that they know Jesus. Three, that you have overcome Satan. He says it twice. He says you know the Father twice and that you are strong and that the Word of God abides in you. These are words of encouragement. Are you encouraged? It's really hard to go. And I, does that put wind in your sails? Oh, Pastor, I know this. This is Christianity 101. I've known this for decades, Pastor. Why don't you preach something new? <laughs> uh... I am. This is new. This is, this is the first time I'm preaching this. And I'm preaching it to a group in this room that are very knowledgeable about faith in Christ. Very knowledgeable about Scripture. But we need to be encouraged that these things are true of us. And if this doesn't put wind in your sails, then you're probably not going through a hard time right now. They were, and others are. But whether the, we say the gospel's for every person at every moment, this is why. Because we can be encouraged in all these areas. We are conquerors. We are victorious. We, get to, we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. 
We, are a, we have the ability to go and make a difference in other people's lives, not through our message, but through the message of God, which we call the gospel. And, and this is all true of us, and we ought to be encouraged by it, because with that encouragement, it puts winds on our sails. Uh, one author wrote, the old, I'm talking about the older people, the old have the experience and knowledge of the truth appropriate to their mature years. Very, he's very uh, you know, caring here, to the mature years, right? And the young have a, the vigor, valor, and militancy usually attributed to the young. As John's speaking to these folks, he's talking to an intergenerational church. And he's saying that we're all in this. We're all living this life together. But listen, you older folks, be encouraged. Your faith has gotten you that far. These younger people, you've overcome Satan. You're living the faith. So as we continue, we need to understand that it is encouraging to remind, to be reminded about the benefits of our faith, but our faith must be put into action. It should frustrate every one of us that after a corporate gathering of God's people on a Sunday morning, a Sunday evening, a Wednesday night, or whenever it might be, that we would go out and not do anything with it. The article that I read last week, it finished with, Go and do likewise, right? Love others. If you're going to abide in Christ, love other Christians, right? Well, go and do. What he's saying here is like, listen, I'm encouraging you. All these things are true, but now that you know they're true, go put it into action. This is the maturing faith. Remember, this, this, this big idea is the maturing fa- a maturing faith will align one's desires with the will of God. So, are you, do you have a maturing faith? Are you stagnant in your Christianity? Are you struggling with just the, the most rudimentary aspects of your faith and day? Is the world so, somehow overwhelming you that you just don't know what to do? I just can't seem to take a step, Pastor. Everything I do just seems to, to, to just end up in darkness. Right? That's what we talked about last week. I desire for myself and I desire for you, and I think we all ought to desire this for each one of us, a maturing faith. This ought to be what we're seeking to have in our church. A maturing faith will align one's desires with the will of God. We see that as we, as we consider this uh, court, uh, uh, plotting the course ahead. Christians are called to a life of love. That life of love that we've already talked about is this idea of a love for other Christians, but it's also a life of love for God the Father. And so as John continues, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What's John saying? Guys, be encouraged with all the truths that you have in Christ. But know this, your focus, you need to love the Father. You need to have the love for the Father. And, and, and it needs to be in you. It needs to be part of you. And that, that's what he's trying to nail home. He's trying to bring this home to, to his listeners. He's saying, don't. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The actual tense, the idea of it, stop loving the world. Some of you are already doing it, John is saying to his congregation and his hearers. I would be naive to think, and you would be naive to think, that there aren't people in in this room or watching us online that aren't somehow loving the world. And we need to be saying, stop. Stop loving the world or the things in the world. It's a road that leads to darkness. He says, if anyone loves the world, 
The love of the Father's not in him. This is the idea that the love of the world and the love of the Father, they're exclusive. You can only do one or the other. And what's the pitfall of so many Christians' lives? Trying to do both. I'm trying to love God, but I can't seem to break away from my love of the world. Some of us are ignorant that we're even in love with the world. Ask yourself again, why are you struggling in your faith? You need to start evaluating. I need to start evaluating the areas of my life where I'm in love with the world and not the Father because I can't do both. It reminds us of John, uh, James 4 where uh, James writes, Adulterers and adulteresses, do, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Why did I want to? It's saying the same thing. Well, John's an apostle. James is an apostle. Uh, well, actually, this James is, is, is even closer to the apostle. He grew up with Jesus, right? These, these people were there from the beginning. This is apostolic teaching. This is, this is not new, but it needs to be lived. A love for the Father requires aligning our desires to His. If we're going to have this love for the Father that John is really compelling them to have, be encouraged, but get active. A love for the Father requires aligning our desires to His. He says, for all that is in the world. All right? If you want to take that little part out, the middle part out of there, it says, for all that is in the world is not of the Father, but is of the world. There is a reality that we are not of the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're used to that terminology. This is kind of what it's saying, is that anything in the world, part of the, the, the systems of, of, of government, uh, the, 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 the principalities and powers behind the powers, right? The, the spiritual realm, the, all the wickedness and evil and, the, and the, the things that are of a fallen nature, all those things that do not bring honor and glory to God, all that stuff's of the world. It's not of the Father. And then he describes what this... Love, uh, what this world looks like, right? He says, for all that is in the world, he says, the lust of the flesh. And I, that's, I got ahead of myself. So basically what he's saying is aligning our, our desires with God's is we must reject all that is in the world, all right? And, and we, be, why? Because we are exclusively God's. We are, we are kingdom dwellers. We are a family of God. We have the ability. We have been set free. We have liberty, we are no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. We have the freedom to serve and do right with God. We must reject all that is in the world. This is not talking about the worldly things people do. I mean, yes, it's part of it. But it's not like, oh, can I just not do this and, and do this? Can I, can I not go to certain places? And, and we can get all our laundry list of legalistic things that we're allowed to do and not allowed to do. And then we'll somehow conclude that we are right with God. And that's not what it's saying. We need to reject the whole kit and caboodle of, of iniquity and the desires that haunt us because we are tempted by the world. And John's just saying, don't love the world in your context. Don't, don't come up with some laundry list of things that somehow deceive you into thinking you're right. That might be pride, which is part of the world. He says, for all that is in the world, he says, the lust of the flesh... That's the, that's the overarching term, right? The, the next two kind of fall into this broader category. Uh, and it, it's supposed to be underlined. I don't know why that, that does that. It drives me nuts, right? But it's don't, don't cross out lust, right? That's, that's, that's supposed to be there. He says this is what all that is in the world. The lust, that word lust is the word for desire. 
You have desires. I have desires. I have desire to finish at a reasonable time and have soup for lunch. Just a little bit, and then I'm going for the dessert. Okay? I have my desires. Sinful desires are translated as lust. Godly desires are usually, are usually uh, identified or translated as desires, right? So for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, you have them and so do I. But we are, the, the sinful desires of the flesh, we are supposed to reject. He says, the desires of the flesh, I'm sorry, not he says, but the desires of the flesh is a broad term which incorporates the next two desires, which is the first one being the lust of the eyes. These things. The things that we, that we uh, watch and learn with. And, and, but what it's saying is, is this idea. What we see often ignites a desire for something we should not desire. We could say it ignites a, a lust for something we should not desire. We all are, are, have these things, these dynamics going on in our lives. The eyes are the eye gate, right? We call it the eye gate. There are things that we see, cars that we long for, houses that we long for, uh, clothing, um, uh, prosperity, any of those things. It's the, when we see those things and we want them, it's the visual, the, the, the ocular. Uh, not, that, that, not that people that struggle with, with blindness or, or lost vision don't struggle in these ways, but certainly we struggle in these ways. He says... Not only is the lust of the eyes, those things that entice us and draw us that are, that are part of the lust of the flesh, but the pride of life. Now, this, this terminology, this is a little different too because that word pride is the idea of boastfulness, arrogance, those type things, the arrogance of life. This word life is, is, can translate, be translated any number of ways. Simplistically, it's just life. But contextually, it's probably dealing more with lifestyle. It's more dealing with the world that we see and we hear and we engage in. He's saying, listen, the pride, the arrogance of our lifestyle, uh, to clarify, it's what we have in this life, whether it be possessions, popularity, whatever it might be, things that we possess, they become idols if we do not reject them out of a love for God. The love, of, Listen, if we're walking in darkness, we don't know the Father, right? I mean, we need to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. So love for the Father requires aligning our desires to His. So we must reject all that is in the world, but secondly, we must reject the temporal for the eternal. We've talked about this before. We've got we to have our sights a little bit higher than our 401k. We've got to have our sights just a little higher than, than the next promotion. We've got to have our sights a little bit higher than, than the, you know, whatever is on our horizon, right? We've just got to look above that horizon, and we've got to see God. We must reject the temporal and embrace the eternal. And I think that's what he's saying here in, in verse 17. As he concludes this portion, he says, And the world is passing away. This sounds a lot like darkness passing away because the light is already shining. He's saying, listen, the world is passing away in the now. This is happening now. The world is passing away. What does it mean? You know, we are one day closer to the return of Jesus Christ. It could happen today. What are, we, what are, we, what are our priorities? 
Do we have the love of God or do we, are we in love with the world? He says, listen, the world is passing away. Don't love the world. It ends in destruction. Don't love the world because the world is coming to an end, right? The world is going to pass away. And the good news is, and the lust of it. Not only will sin be dealt with, the, the, the evil desires are going to go away too. That's why we look forward to heaven, right? Being in the presence of God. I cannot wait till I do not have to struggle with the sins I tend to struggle with. I cannot wait to have total freedom in Christ. Sin has been vanquished on the cross, but it hasn't been totally removed until Jesus consummates all things, until he he returns. He says, listen, don't get caught up in the love of the world. Love the Father, because the world is passing away, and so is the evil desires that come along with it. And then he concludes with this, but he who does the will of God abides forever. There's the eternal thought for you. We get to abide forever, right, with God. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Um, This is is the end here, right? We're we're just about at the last slide. So the world's passing away. The lust of it is gone too. But he who does the will of God. That's you and me. Whether we're older, whether we're younger. No matter, no matter what our category, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is true of you. He encourages at the beginning, he exhorts, he challenges in the middle, and then he gives us this little golden nugget at the end. He who does the will of God abides forever. We get to transcend this world to the next. And this is not some cultish promise. This is the promise of God. And he's saying that when you have faith in my son, you will live in eternity with me. And you won't have to deal with sin anymore. So put your faith into action. A maturing faith, something that we all ought to, we all should desire. A maturing faith. A maturing faith will align one's desires with the will of God. Do you find yourself as you walk, as you continue in your Christian faith, uh, do you find yourself looking more and more like Jesus? Do you thinking more and more like Jesus and doing those things that are more characteristic of Jesus? You ought to expect it, but it doesn't just happen. It happens when we are obeying the will of God. And certainly in the context here, that means loving Him and loving our neighbors for sure. Let's desire a maturing faith. And let's align our desires to the will of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the time that we have had this morning to be challenged by your word. Certainly, Father, it is difficult to hear that the world is is, uh, seeking to to destroy us when we think of the power of Satan and and we know that that the sinfulness that we have experienced in our own life, the sinfulness that we see all around us when we hear about people killing other people, when we hear parents potentially killing their own child, when we hear this horrific news day in and day out, we might come to the the belief that it's hopeless. But Father, you are a God of hope. And for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, for those who believe that he is your son, 
through those who understand that he has died for all sins of all time for all people and those who have come to put their faith in him get to spend eternity with you to have an eternal relationship with you that we get to experience even in the now father those are words that can encourage us and understand that satan is already vanquished his power over us is 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 non-existent in christ Father, please build a desire in our hearts to mature in our faith. Father, help us to recognize the, the, the evil desires that we have, and Lord, help us to repent of them, to say no to them, and to say yes to the love of the Father. Father, may we love you more and more each day until you call us home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.